So instead, I think a deeper why um, rooted in obedience to God, submission to God, and faithfulness to his teachings about sex. That's what I would emphasize instead. Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Train United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri. We share the unchanging gospel with a changing culture. And I'm Eric Sintel, and I'm very pleased to bring you this conversation with Dr. Camden Morgante. Dr. Camden is a licensed clinical psychologist and adjunct college professor. She writes and speaks about Christianity, psychology, and gender equality. She's a regular contributor to Christians for Biblical Equality's blog, Mutuality. And she has also been published in Fathom magazine. She lives in Knoxville, Tennessee with her husband, their daughter, and two rescue dogs. And she is currently writing a book on the myths of purity culture. Um, so in this conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about her work as a psychologist and a counselor, but also um, mostly about purity culture. And so we're going to talk about um, relationship stuff between men and women. And so just keep that in mind if you're listening with any people that you would you know, rather not listen to that with. Um, and uh, this is a really great conversation because... Camden was directly affected by purity culture. It made a real impact on her faith um, in general. And she had to then deconstruct some of that impact. And now she um, identifies myths and um, other misleading ideas from purity culture that really set her and set many, many other people up for crises of faith, for a lot of uh, shame and hardship. And she, most importantly, provides alternatives in our conversation that will help us to um, teach a biblical ethic without um, imparting shame and uh, causing crises of faith down the line. Um, so I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without any further ado, Camden, could you tell us a little bit about your faith background to start with? Well, I was raised uh, evangelical. Christian um, and attended non-denominational churches for the most part growing up and um, faith was always a really important part of my upbringing and my life and um, when I was in high school I was real involved in my church youth group and and that was kind of the time where my faith became my own when I was a teenager and um, just started to be more invested in growing in my faith on my own and and not just my family's tradition, you know. Um, and then I went to a Christian college, and yeah, so faith was always really important to me. And then um, after college, I went to a Christian grad school to get my doctorate in psychology, and that was in my 20s, and that was kind of a period of spiritual doubts and questions, and purity culture played a role in that, and kind of that's what led me to my research and the integration of faith and sexuality and how purity culture affected that and everything. So, um, so I went through a few years of kind of stepping away from church and just searching and, um, reading a lot and just kind of trying to, to, to figure out what I believed. And I always identified as a Christian, even through that period, um, which, you know, some people call deconstruction now, um, that's a popular term. And, um, and so I hesitate to use that term sometimes because I always maintain my identity as a Christian and, and some people who experience that kind of deconstruction process no longer consider themselves Christian. So I, I always still believed in God, but just felt really distant from him for a while. And then um, really felt like I was able to come back through a more deeper understanding of God's grace and 
Um, and again, like I said, purity culture played a big role in that, which I'm sure we'll get into more. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I work still in Christian spaces and um, and often spaces that are more conservative than me. So having to navigate that and and, um, and of course write and speak about um, Christian topics too. So it's still very um, integral part of my mm -hmm. life and my family now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you're a clinical psychologist and, and you do therapy with clients, correct? Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So how would you describe your work as a psychologist or therapist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in private practice right now. Um, so I'm, I see therapy clients. Um, and in the past, I've been a, a professor at Christian colleges and been um, full-time and adjunct professor. So so I've done teaching and then practice and supervising other therapists and things like that. Um, so being in a, I'm in a Christian private practice, a group practice with other therapists. So most of our clients know that it's a Christian practice and many of them come there because they are looking for a Christian practice. Some don't, you know, some just found it online and just um, right now oh, there's a great need for mental health services and um, not, not as many options as people need. So there's, um, there's, um, I think, a wider diversity of clients. Um, but I was trained to be um, a professional and competent therapist first and then to integrate people's faith um, according to their preferences. So I was trained not to push my faith onto clients or my beliefs or values, but to assess where they're at in their um, beliefs and values and to work within that worldview or belief system. So sometimes that can create conflicts because I'm working with clients who have different values than me and navigating that. And, um, um, and sometimes it works really seamlessly because we have similar worldviews and can have come from a similar place. But I've never found anyone who's exactly the same, um, you know, with clients. And I've never found anyone, even when they seem very similar to me in age or in life experiences or in their professed faith, I've never found anyone who believes exactly the same thing, which I think is, is normal. And, um, and so coming from a, as a professional and licensed therapist, I respect that. And, um, and really it's more about meeting them where they're at. So that, that's, that's in some ways how licensed professional um, therapy is different than a more pastoral or biblically based counseling. Um, that's a perfect segue because I was going to ask, um, you know, it, it sounds like you're a psychologist first or therapist first, and then a Christian therapist second. Um, and I've heard some, I've heard and read some rather strong criticisms of Christian counseling that reverses that, you know, where it's, um, it's not ne necessarily informed by psychological research or knowledge, but more just like you described, biblically based um, ideas and values. Um, and so I've heard some criticisms of that. Um, and I guess I'm curious, first of all, is my characterization accurate um, of each type of therapy and the difference? And then secondly, what are your thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. I think different counselors will have um, different characterizations. Um, and when I was in grad school, 
actually remember writing, we had to write like a paper on our identity as a Christian and as a psychologist and how we made sense of that. So similar to what you're saying, like, do we identify as a psychologist first or a Christian psychologist or, um, you know, how we made sense of that. And so even in the group practice I'm in, there's a, there's a pretty good variety of people who would probably say, no, I'm a Christian first. And I'm like here to try to, you know, bring the gospel and bring healing to my clients. And then there's some like me who would say more, no, I'm, I'm a professional psychologist. You know, some people are using their insurance to pay for this. So I'm here to, to treat people's mental health and to meet them where they're at when it comes to their faith. So, yeah, so there's, there's differences. I think, um, the main difference is, is when it comes to, are you a professionally trained and licensed therapist? Um, licensure just means you have to adhere to a lot more, um, state and national regulations um your training had to adhere to more regulations and more standards um versus somebody with just like a biblical counseling certificate or even a master's in like christian counseling but didn't pursue licensure might not have as many high ethical and legal standards um so i always say you know there can be a time and a place for biblical or pastoral counseling um but I think they're mostly trained to speak and talk. I'm mostly trained to listen. Um, and so that's, that's something I just notice a difference whenever I'm talking to a pastor is that they do the majority of the talking. Um, but as a therapist, I do the majority of the listening. Interesting. Um, and when I talk, yeah. it's really more to reflect and to ask questions and to help guide the client to figure things out themselves rather than to give advice or to tell them what I think or what they should believe or do. Um, so those are some of the differences. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I guess um, a lot of the criticisms that I've heard or read have been from people who had um, pretty serious, you know, mental health issues or life issues. Um, and then, you know, their Christian counselor or biblical, biblically based counselor um, basically said, well, you need to pray more. And they're like, I, mm -hmm. I don't think praying more is going to, to help with my OCD or my depression or mm -hmm. my, you know, abusive relationship. Um, you know, and so I, I guess uh, I'm, I'd be curious to hear you talk just a little bit about why that is, you know, <laughs> you know, like I know John Piper made, uh, some waves, you know, in the last year or so, you know, saying if you have a mental health issue, you basically just need to focus more on God. Um, you need to pray more. And, you know, a lot of people are like, no, I have a chemical imbalance um, that, you know, I, or I have, you know, I, I did that and it didn't change my, you know, abusive relationship or whatever the case might be. Um, so I'd be curious to hear, you know, you reflect on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a biblical counseling model of integration is going to view all mental illness as sin um, typically views it as sin and as and the Bible as the answer. Um, a a more integrative psychology and Christianity or faith model that I was trained in um, views mental illness as having a diverse causes, you know, um, nature, nurture, and and all in between, um, and looks mostly to psychological interventions and treatments and prayer. So I think it's like psychology and prayer. Like I'm not saying that prayer can't be helpful or that scripture or um, Christian community can't be helpful. I think those things definitely can be helpful for people who, um, who are involved in them, but not to the exclusion of the science and the research that God has given us. Um, 
to reveal, you know, his truth. So it can be very harmful, like you're saying, to, to let, to make clients or people think that their mental illness is a result of sin or that they just need to pray harder because that creates so much shame of, well, what am I doing wrong? And I'm still struggling with this. I've been praying about it for years and really ignores, like I said, the science that God has given us and the wisdom that he's given us in the form of, um, of professional uh, therapists and the research that's been done. So, yeah. So like I said, there could be a time and a place for pastoral counseling and, um, certainly when people are going through spiritual doubts or have questions, because I don't want to impose my own beliefs, I often refer them to their um, faith leaders. You know, is there a pastor or is there a leader at your church or place of worship that you feel comfortable talking about this with? Or So I'll kind of um, use that as an adjunct to treatment. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not going to be trained in how to treat trauma. They're not going to be trained in how to treat OCD or mental illness some of the things you were saying. So, um, yeah, so definitely knowing the limits of your expertise is important so you don't do harm. Yeah, that, that's very well said. And, and that's really good advice for virtually any profession, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so you're r- working on a book about the myths of purity culture. And you mentioned that, you know, purity culture was a significant factor in your faith journey and, and some of your um, evolution and, and your beliefs and thinking. Um, so what is purity culture or how would you define purity culture? Uh, what are some of its myths and why are those myths harmful to people? Okay. Yeah. So purity culture was this whole cultural movement, mostly, um, reached its heyday in the 1990s or early 2000s, which is when I was a teenager. Um, and it's more than just the belief in premarital sexual abstinence. That's often the first thing you think of or the first thing you hear when you think of purity culture. But it was all of the extra teachings that went along with it and some of the cultural artifacts that went along with it. So things like making a true love weights pledge or having a ring that um, promised your purity to your future spouse um, or having purity balls or rallies or um, or things like that. So some of those extra things that went along with the teaching. And there's lots of historical reasons why this came about. It's interesting when you look at the just historical trajectory of um, abstinence-only education starting to be more emphasized in schools and the rise in um, teen pregnancy rates and AIDS in the 80s, like all of that kind of snowballed and led to this huge emphasis, especially in religious circles, of we need to really emphasize um, purity and abstinence for teenagers. So um, so you were asking, like, how my story with it and how I was affected by it, too? Yeah, if, if you'd like, to, yeah, if you'd like um, to get into that, that'd be great. Um, um, yeah, I was, a, I was a huge proponent of purity culture in my, in my teen and young adult probably young 20s. Um, I had a true love weights ring. I made a pledge and I read a lot of books. There was a lot of books about um, courtship and I kissed dating goodbye and purity and especially for, for young women, especially um, for women, it was really emphasized to keep your virtue and stay pure and you know, don't give pieces of your heart away and things like that. So I really bought into this, a big believer in it. And really bought into what I now call the false promises and myths of purity culture um, that I was 
going to be guaranteed um, a spouse if I stayed pure, that I was going to um, just have this like loving Christian marriage if I did all the right things, um, and that God was going to give me my fairy tale. So I bought into all of that and went to, I mentioned, went to a Christian college, which was a great experience um, overall. And I um, dated someone at college. I thought I was going to marry him, and that was going to be my fairy tale. And, and after three years of dating, it ended, and I was just, I was heartbroken and, and devastated emotionally, of course, at the end of the relationship, but, but very much spiritually, too. Um, and that's the catalyst for um, the, the many years of deconstruction or spiritual journey that I went on of um you know, why should I trust God if he didn't give me what I felt he promised me? Um, how is God really good if he didn't give me this reward that purity culture told me I would get? What's the point of even staying pure if I'm not going to get what I was told I was going to get? So, yeah, so that was the catalyst um, for the many, many years of, of wondering. And then probably about more of my mid to late 20s, I'd say, is when I realized that purity culture had done a lot of harm. I think that was when a lot of us were starting to get older that had grown up in purity culture. We were getting old enough that we had some distance from it and could kind of see the ramifications and consequences of it. And I could start to see like, wow, this is largely responsible for the spiritual doubts that I went through. Um, This is largely responsible for the anger and jealousy and bitterness that I had and just disillusionment in my faith. Um, yeah, so, so then I, I kind of switched to becoming a critic of purity culture, but at the same time, um, doing a lot of, again, reading, reflecting prayer, I still believe that the, the goal of purity culture, which was to um, be sexually abstinent until marriage, I still believe that that is a biblical and true one. That's something that I still am a proponent of, which a lot of people who speak out on purity culture are, are no longer proponents of that belief um and so there's been some tension in still holding um a biblical sexual ethic or a traditional sexual ethic while criticizing the culture and the methods of you know, of teaching that ethic um it's kind of easier to be one or the other it's a little more black and white to be one or the other so in my writing and speaking there's always some nuance and some um i think just it attracts people who can hold that there's those are the, both those things can be true. Um, we don't have to throw out what I believe is God's teaching about sex um, along with purity culture. So, so that's kind of where I've arrived now. And I did eventually. Um, I met my husband, and we got married when we were thirty. So it was a lot later than I expected, and uh, later than my peer group uh, got married and settle down so um but that that had a huge impact too just realizing like that he's a big gift of grace to me and my family now is a gift of grace that I did nothing to earn whereas purity culture told me like you earn those things through staying pure um yeah so the journey that I took with with purity culture yeah that that's really fascinating um you know as you were talking about that it it I thought this sounds a lot like a form of the prosperity gospel. You know, you mm-hmm. if you do these things, God will bless you in these ways. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like you described, when it doesn't work out that way, 
it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I was told this, taught this, I did it, and then this is how it's turning out. What's up, God? You know, it, it could definitely, you know, spark some serious questions. And a, and for many people, a crisis of faith, um, not to mention, yes. yeah, and not to mention the, the, the way that the culture used shaming to enforce <laughs> that idea. You know, it's like we have this biblical set, biblical sexual ethic it's a good thing that's it's a good goal um but then you know when you shame people uh into uh following the, these guidelines to achieve that goal i mean that is also harmful you know it's one of those things where the means doesn't or the ends don't necessarily justify the means um at least that's what i i've heard a lot of people who were much more affected by purity culture than me i that's what i've heard them saying um, what are you? What do you think about that shaming component of it? Where, you know, okay, women or girls, you're responsible for not just your purity, but also men's purity. Because you're, if you're dressing immodestly, you're cause, you know, you could cause them to stumble. Um, and you've really got to be the the sexual breaks or the uh, referees, you know, to make sure that these wanton boys who can't control themselves don't go too far. Um, you know, how, how have you experienced or maybe in working with clients or speaking or writing, how have you seen others experience that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, shame seems to be the universal product of purity culture. Um, whether you're single or married or forced, whether you remain absent before marriage or not, um, I, I see a lot of shame in everyone. Um, and it just takes many different forms. Like I had shame during the years that I was single, what's wrong with me when I followed the rules and I haven't found my person. Um, and then I see shame in, in clients or just in, in my writing of people who have premarital sex and they think they're damaged goods, which is one of the, the myths that I've identified, the damaged goods myth, um, and that you're just beyond repair if you've had premarital sex, which is not biblical. Um, and then there can be shame for married couples when they get married and it's hard to flip the switch, which is another one of the myths. So the flip switch myth of that as soon as you get married, it's just going to be amazing. Sex is going to be easy and, and pleasurable and right away. It doesn't take any you know, work or anything. Um, and so then there's shame of like, why aren't we enjoying sex or why is this hard to make that switch? Mm -hmm. So I think shame is um, is very damaging, and, and my training as a psychologist really helps me here because um, because shame is a part of many mental illnesses too, and and, and many experiences, and uh, a big part of my therapy is um, emotional regulation skills, teaching clients how to identify and regulate their emotions, and so shame is an emotion that a lot of people don't recognize. Um, we're, we're more able to recognize guilt, um, which is the feeling that I've done something wrong, but shame is the feeling that I am wrong or I am bad. So it's more of an emphasis on identity and your character, who you are as a person, rather than just behavioral actions. And guilt, um, in the psychological literature, it says guilt can be healthy and adaptive because it can show us when our actions aren't aligned with our values. So when we do something, an action or a behavior that's not congruent with who we want to be as a person, then we can make changes and correct that. But shame is not motivating, healthy, or adaptive because the focus is so much on who you are as a person, like holistically, that there's nothing that you can do to change that. So it's very unmotivating and it just keeps people stuck. 
Um, so in my therapy work, I help clients identify the difference between guilt and shame. And when their guilt is justified, like when they really have done things um, that go against their values and, and what they want to do differently. And then when the shame um, is coming, especially from external sources like the church, like family, society, um, some of the examples you mentioned of like girls being responsible for for um, for male, men's sexuality and um, some of the examples I gave of um, you know struggling with with their sexuality and marriage and things like that. So so we look at where did the shame come from and what was the intent or purpose of the shame that people gave you? Was it a method or tool to control um, or to influence your behavior or to kind of keep you in line or um, something like that? And then I help people just act opposite to the shame. If it's not justified and it's coming externally um, from these external cultural forces um, and you haven't acted against your values, then the shame is no longer helpful. And, and you can throw it off and and really focus on acting congruent with your values. And so some, some of those like terms I use, like just integrative and wholeness and like helping people reach that point in their sexuality and in their choices. Um, yeah, so that's how I, how I work with shame on a therapy level. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, you, Camden, you've written about uh, the differences between precepts and promises. You know, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in my article when I when I write about the fairy tale myth, which is the promise that if you remain pure, um, that God will give you a fairy tale spouse and family and marriage. And I write that that is a precept, not a promise. Um, the majority of Scripture is is precept based. So a precept is a guiding or general rule that's intended to regulate behavior or control or influence us. A promise is a guarantee, something that's going to be more in line with God's character. So some of the big promises, like if we um, ask for forgiveness, God forgives us. That's a promise. If we um, accept Jesus as our Savior, God gives us grace and eternal life. Um, so those are going to be, promises are going to be things that are in line with God's character. But precepts are going to be more of the general principles that are meant to influence us. Um, and some of the ones that I've identified are like the train up a child, Proverbs. You know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not de- Well, we know that's not a guarantee, right? That is not a promise. Um, because it's a human we can't control it's not god who is unchanging and who um is always faithful and keeps his promises so it's a good general rule that we want to train our children well we want to instill faith in them but it's not a guarantee that when they grow up they will be faithful christians i think the same thing of purity um it's a general rule that we want to um obey god and we want to follow his teachings about sex we want to know what those teachings are and we want to align our um, lives with them, but it's not a guarantee that we'll get the result or the outcome that purity culture promised. And when we believe that, it leads to a lot of entitlement. Um, and again, coming back to what we've talked about with the prosperity gospel and a works-based gospel, if I'm going to work to earn the reward of marriage by staying pure or making these you know, right choices, instead of this grace-based faith of, I'm going to follow and obey God because um, because that's how I want to honor him with my life. And 
going to trust that he, his grace, he'll give me his grace in whatever form that is. And that that's his best for me, whether that's marriage, whether that's singleness, whether that's children, you know, um, different outcomes like that. So yeah, does that make sense? The difference there? That makes perfect sense. And, and that strikes me as a really great lens to read all of scripture for all of topics, you know, um, cause yeah, I, I, I think that's such a helpful distinction between, you know, the precept, um, and that's kind of a general principle versus the promise that's consistent or in line with God's character. And, and that's what you can really take to the bank. Um, right. yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. And so if you were in charge of a youth group, <laughs> what would you tell them about sex and relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I get a form of this question a lot when people say, like, what do I teach my kids about sex? Um, and so so if I was approaching it, I, I do still want to teach um, sexual abstinence before marriage. But instead of giving false promises and giving myths and using shame as a tool to control their behavior, I would want to reframe it as rather than what we're avoiding what are we working towards? So kind of like rather than reframing it in the negative, framing it in the positive. And so I look at purity as a um, spiritual discipline. And there's a there's a lot of um, evidence that chastity is, is a spiritual virtue or is a spiritual discipline or practice, just like fasting or prayer or tithing, you know, some of these other spiritual disciplines we hear about so the practice of chastity is something positive like a goal we can work towards rather than just something we're avoiding or abstaining from and i think it encompasses more than just your behavior you know purity culture made it all about your behavior what what are you doing you know how far is too far you've crossed the line but um, looking at it as a spiritual discipline more so encompasses our thoughts our intentions our motivations our heart Um, and really the reasons why we're doing this. I always say, like, you have to have a deeper why um, for sexual purity because giving people the false promise of marriage for kids or mind-blowing sex when you're married, um, those are not, those are maybe effective in the short term, but in the long term, we've seen how damaging they can be. So instead, I think a deeper why um, rooted in, obedience to God, submission to God, and faithfulness to his teachings about sex, that's what I would emphasize instead. And and that's a lot more nuanced and maybe harder to communicate to a youth group than just saying like, hey, if you have sex, you're a dirty cup of water that's been spit in. Or hey, if you, if you wait until you're married, you're, you're just going to have a smoking hot wife and amazing wedding night sex. You know, those things are easier to just like it out um it's it's a lot more complex just to focus on things like spiritual disciplines and obedience and but that's really where we make the internal shift and make that choice not because of external reasons but because of our own internal motivations is when we can emphasize you're doing this out of obedience to god and out of gratitude for the sacrifices he's made for you and his life on the cross and the grace he's given you and out of that gratitude is the desire to serve him and to obey him and to live life according to his will 
think that's what we need to emphasize to all Christians, rather than, like you said earlier, the prosperity gospel, um, which is just this promise of external rewards. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a definitely more complex um, way of approaching the topic, probably harder for a youth pastor to get that across to teens, but I think it'll be more effective in the long run. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's a, a really good a set of advice for, you know, to frame it positively and focus on chastity, chastity. I'm going to have to re-record that. Um, and to fo- you know, to focus on the positive and obeying God and serving God, you know, through that spiritual discipline of purity. Um, I think that is great advice. Um, I think it would be, you know, and, and I especially like how that addresses thoughts and feelings and, and emotions as well. Um, because I, I have a theory that a lot of purity culture stemmed from a a really unhealthy view of lust versus noticing. You know, it seems like, you know, evangelical culture um, and Christian culture has equated noticing with lusting. And, and so, you know, you're, as a man, you're walking around and you notice other women you have been taught noticing is lusting then you just walk around all day feeling terrible about yourself and angry you know or not even angry but you know with growing resentment toward this whole you know situation um and then you scale that up you know at the with the christian publishing industry and the speaker circuit and um you know training of uh youth group pastors and things like that um and, and so I, I like how your advice is really helpful, not just for girls, but also boys to say, well, no, let's look at this more holistically, like noticing is not lusting. Um, let's talk about purity and chastity and, um, and just obeying God and respect and serving God and what that looks like, you know, for your thoughts, your emotions, your motivations, as well as your behavior. Um, yeah. 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 And I know you've had, um, Sheila Rebois yeah. on here before and, and her book, she, The Great Sex Rescue, she does talk about the difference between attraction and lust and that attraction is, is really automatic and uh, are noticing. Um, it's, it's automatic. It's unconscious. It's, it's mm-hmm. not, um, it's not a sin, but lust is the dwelling on it and the, and the starting to covet something that doesn't belong to you. And so, so that's when it maybe crosses over into sin, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's a misunderstanding what I think you're saying is is a misunderstanding about those concepts and that leads to a lot of unnecessary shame and frustration um, Mm -hmm. for young, young men, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lack of like holistic sex education, purity culture. And that's something that comes up a lot in my community of when I'm writing and speaking is people got married and usually very young, you know, and didn't have any kind of sex education. So then they encountered sexual problems or, difficulties in their marriage and they had no idea where to turn or what to do because all they were promised was this amazing sex life that didn't come about so yeah yeah i'm glad you brought up sheila um you know one thing i remember from her com- our, my conversation with her that's relevant to what we're talking about is you know that that noticing is lusting myth um affects women too right women you know, are taught that and learn that. And that's part of why they're supposed to be so um, policing of what they wear and, you know, responsible for men's purity. 
Um, and then, you know, once they're married, they're like very suspicious of their husbands. You know, they're very, you know, they have kind of a jaded view of their husbands. And the craziest finding from their uh, Sheila's book, The Great Sex Rescue, is even if women didn't believe that, mm-hmm. it still affected them. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's just crazy uh, to me, but, but that's what the data show. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard some married women I've spoken to have said, like, my husband doesn't want to have sex every day. And I'm like, what's wrong with him? Is he not attracted to me? Is, you know, is he, what's, you know, what's going on? Like, what's wrong with us? And so there's shame about that. And it's like, no, that's actually pretty normal because he has, like, work stress, too, or he's tired or whatever. Like, it's <laughs> it's okay. Like, and they don't realize that because all we were taught was that men are sex machines who want sex all the time and who can't look at you without thinking about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and who like only really care about you or like try to pursue you for to get sex, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's not true. And so it's it's been interesting. My husband was raised Christian, um, but more Protestant mainline rather than evangelical, and so he didn't grow up with a lot of these teachings, um, a lot of the extra purity culture stuff. So it's been interesting um, just seeing how his experience was so different than mine and how some of these things that I heard that I just took as like, Oh, this, this is truth. He's like not heard of. And I'll tell him and he's like, what? You know, like just, <laughs> he's just baffled that that's what's being taught about men or about sex and, and marriage. So yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I can't remember who said this, but I, I saw someone I think on Twitter or Facebook or something say, you know, my husband was not raised uh, Christian and or my boyfriend or something was not raised Christian. And he treats me far better than my Christian boyfriends or my Christian ex-husband did, you know, and if that's not, yeah. you know, and obviously there are individual differences and, you know, and there are, you know, bad people in any group. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but that still is a pretty strong indictment. Um, and I've I've you know, heard also what you're describing too before that, you know, people, uh, men who didn't grow up this, their minds are just blown by what their wives share with them. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also are a coach. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with coaching kind of as a, a thing that's more recent, but our listeners may not uh, be as familiar with that. So like you're a writer, a speaker, but then as a coach, you know, what does that work look like? You know, you're coaching people and recovering from purity culture and also helping them with egalitarian living. Um, but could you unpack a little bit what that means, your, your work as a coach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my coaching um, practice is something new that I'm launching in, in the next month or so. Um, so that's going to be a new endeavor for me. And it really came about because as a psychologist, I'm restricted restricted to practice only in my state. Um, so every licensed therapist can only practice in the state they're licensed in. And I'm in Tennessee. And so that's, that's where I'm licensed. And so um, the last year as I've been doing this writing and speaking, I'll get um, emails from people who, who heard me on a podcast who want to meet with me and who want my help. And they're in like New Jersey and you know, I can't help them in New Jersey and I don't know anyone in New Jersey to refer them to. And so it's, it's been hard to turn down so many people because you know, they'll hear me on a podcast and just really maybe resonate and feel like I, um, they could get a lot out of working with me one-on-one. So, so from that, I, um, 
just started doing my research and learning how I could um, also offer coaching in a, um, you know, in a professional kind of way. Anybody can call themselves a coach. It's not a regulated profession, so um, so you have to know that. Um, but I like that it gave me the ability to see people in any state. And um, I don't have to adhere to such strict ethical or legal guidelines as I do as a psychologist. So I can um, maybe be a little more directive or give advice or resources. Um, Coaching is meant to be more short term and more like targeted to a specific issue. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm launching that within the next month offering um, coaching for purity culture recovery, egalitarianism and faith reconstruction. So helping people reconstruct their their Christian faith so that we, they can learn you can go through these these spiritual doubts and questions but still um, but still maintain your identity as a Christian and then with the purity culture recovery is everything we're talking about today just helping them with sexual shame and um, sexual issues or how to figure out their own sexual ethic without purity culture and then the egalitarian coaching um, will be for individuals or couples who just want help um, learning about egalitarianism and establishing equal gender roles in their marriage or navigating church um, or parenting as an egalitarian. So um, so some of those things. So I'm really excited about it and just the opportunity to serve more people um, beyond what I can do, like in my writing and speaking, being able to do one-on-one, I think will be so valuable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I definitely appreciate your... um your caution, <laughs> you know, like you said, you know, anybody can call themselves a coach, you know, so uh, you have to make sure that this coach actually is qualified to coach in this subject. And, and I also like, you know, that your coaching is very targeted. Um, because, you know, to me, to my mind, it makes perfect sense. And it's totally uh, ethical that um, you're focusing on purity culture and egalitarian living, faith reconstruction. Like, of course you can be more upfront and directive with, you know, check out these Christian resources, or this is what I think the Bible says about that. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate that, um, ethical awareness you're demonstrating there. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to just get into it and see what it's going to be like and to start working with people. Yeah, absolutely. So I have uh, two questions to conclude with, and I typically ask them together because it seems to work well that way. Um, What is one thing you wish Christians would stop doing, and what is one thing you wish Christians would either start or continue doing? Oh, okay. I I wasn't prepared for these questions. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I wish Christians would stop being black and white about everything um you know i do believe that there's there's truths i do believe that there are um like moral truths and biblical truths um that are more black and white but but for the most part i really strive to walk the middle path is what i call it and to be nuanced and there's just so much rhetoric that is so all or nothing so black and white and so many boxes we have to put ourselves into um, especially on social media. And I always say, like in my writing, I'm very upfront that I really don't identify as a, as a conservative Christian or a progressive Christian. I have a lot of people in my audience that are more progressive, and then I have a few more conservative of Christians, but I really feel like I'm right in the middle, and I don't want to put myself in either box. And 
with purity culture, like I talked about, I still um, hold to the traditional sexual ethic, but I criticize purity culture, so that puts me in the middle. And sometimes it's very confusing for people or feels um, maybe wishy-washy, but for me, it's it's freeing to say, like, I don't have to put myself in either box and adhere to all that that means, you know, the, the prescriptions, I guess, that go along with that label. I really don't identify as evangelical any longer, but I also don't call myself an ex-evangelical because that comes with, along with some stereotypes and labels too. So, yes, I guess that, um, my wish is that Christians would stop being so black and white and be um, more nuanced and more open to exploring the gray areas and seeing what we have in common. I follow a lot of people on social media that I don't agree with on specific issues and I still read their stuff and I still try to find like what are our common areas here like maybe we don't agree on sexual ethic but we do agree um in like the importance of consent and um you know women's issues and we're very passionate about me too and church too movement things like that like I'll try to find the common areas of agreement that we can um come together on or you know, there's some that maybe I feel like they go too far in some areas, but yet they're really passionate about racial justice, and so am I, and so we can partner on that. So I think just being more open to learning from diverse points of view and seeing, like, how can we meet in the middle and how can we come together, even if we don't agree 100% on everything. I've never, like I said, never met anyone that I agree 100% on, including myself. You know, my views change over time, too, so... And I think that's normally healthy. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, and I would agree wholeheartedly that, you know, black and white thinking um, tends to permeate our discussions as a culture and especially as a Christian subculture and especially online. And uh, mm-hmm. often things are more complex, things are more nuanced, there's a lot more gray, and there's definitely a lot more um, that we can agree on and work toward together um, than what we disagree on and divide ourselves with. Um, Camden, thank you so much for this interview. And would you, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners like where they can uh, find you and your work and how they can support the work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me and inviting me. Um, I, the best place to find me is on my website, which is drcamden.com. And then I'm on all the social medias, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the same name, Dr. Camden. So I'm real active on Instagram, especially, and run Instagram lives with some different guests that are fun to just have conversations about different purity culture related topics. And, um, and then of course on my website, you'll find all, all the articles I've written about purity culture, including my first one, which is called five purity culture myths. And then you'll also find information about my coaching services if you're interested in that. So yeah, I'd love to connect with your, your church and your listeners. Excellent. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So there you have it. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think Camden provides really great insights for how we understand and interpret scripture with her distinction between precepts and promises. And I think that the myths of purity culture that she identifies and the alternatives to how we can teach youth and teach ourselves about purity and uh, that word I can't pronounce, chastity. You know, the the way she, the alternatives she provides, I think are just so helpful and useful um, in trying to impart that biblical sexual ethic that we value and that we believe in 
and yet at the same time uh, not using shame and fear and manipulation and forms of the prosperity gospel to achieve it. Uh, instead, emphasizing that obedience to Christ, um, that spiritual discipline. Um, I just think that's such a, a, a better, more positive way to frame it. And I really appreciate Camden for sharing that with us today. So as always, please uh, tell friends about the podcast, um, share with them you know, what we were talking about, uh, engage people in conversations about our topics. Um, let me know if you have any questions or feedback, or if you'd like to come on the show as a guest, uh, I'd love to chat with you. Thanks so much.